listening to Stanford MedCast, Stanford CME's podcast where we bring you insights from the world's leading physicians and scientists. If you're new here, consider subscribing to listen to more free episodes coming your way. I am your host, Dr. Ruth Adibuya. This episode is part one of a new mini-series called The Pediatric Pulse, presented in collaboration with the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. I'm joined today by Dr. Nicole Tyson and Dr. Paula Hillard to discuss pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Dr. Nicole Tyson has practiced gynecology and pediatric and adolescent gynecology for 21 years and is passionate about helping and empowering younger patients. Dr. Tyson founded the Kaiser Sacramento Region's OBGYN teen clinic in 1999 as a chief resident at UC Davis. She's joined Stanford in late 2020 as a clinical associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology and was appointed as the Stanford OBGYN assistant program director for the residency. Dr. Paula Hillard is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Stanford University. She currently directs the program in pediatric and adolescent gynecology at the Lucille Packard Stanford Children's Hospital. She is a past president of the North American Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology and the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. I am very pleased to be chatting with both of you on this topic. As you are very aware, the adolescent patient may present a challenge for the practitioner as they may be hesitant to provide personal information or be anxious regarding the physical exam. Thank you both for joining me today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's start our conversation with defining pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Dr. Hillard, can you tell our listeners what is pediatric and adolescent gynecology? So it's a question that I actually get asked a lot. People aren't very familiar with pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Sometimes they think about adolescent OB and pregnant teens. And one of the things that I sometimes say is that part of what we do is preventive obstetrics. So there are many reasons that adolescence is not necessarily the healthiest time for an individual to be pregnant. And so contraception is a part of what we do, but we take care of the gynecologic needs of everything from newborns all the way up through adolescence and even young adults. So we sometimes say that we practice adolescent and young adult gynecology, AYA. So gynecologic needs of prepubertal girls, vulvovaginal conditions are very common, but prepubertal young girls get ovarian cysts and have developmental variants and abnormalities as well. And adolescents get many of the same things gynecologically that adults do, but there are some additional conditions that are likely to present much more commonly during adolescence. For example, the developmental abnormalities of the genital tract that can sometimes include obstructive variants where there is a blockage to menstrual outflow. And that's also one of the things we deal with. We do complex contraception for girls with complex medical problems and see girls for other complicated gynecologic problems. I think that's a great description of many of the things that we do. Some of the conditions that Dr. Hillard was alluding to are often quite complicated. Sometimes their anatomy, like their malarian development and endocrine needs and 
Certainly here at Stanford, a lot of the complex medical problems, I think it's something that we're really equipped and skilled at caring for, and it can sometimes be a little bit more complicated than in a general gynecology practice. Thanks for that. And so Dr. Tyson, compared to general gynecology, how does pediatric and adolescent gynecology meet the unique needs of girls and young women? We are really comfortable working with this population. I think one of the things that's always a joy for us who do PAG, pediatric and adolescent gynecology, is we love what we do. So we love taking care of the child, the younger patient, and we also love these adolescents. They're our joy. When you think about where we get our referrals and our consultations, they come from largely the adult gynecologists who don't necessarily have a lot of familiarity or comfort taking care of the pediatric patient for sure. And many of them, same thing goes for adolescents. And certainly our pediatric colleagues do often struggle taking care of the adolescent population, but that's our bread and butter. So in addition to the things that Dr. Tyson has described, one of the other things that's different about adolescent gynecology is adolescent development. An 11-year-old is not the same as a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old in terms of these developmental tasks. So adolescents are developing physically. They are developing cognitively, going from being very concrete in their thinking to being able to think abstractly. They're developing socially with relationship to their peers and their families. And all of these developmental tasks are taking place at the same time, but not always at the same pace. And these are not things that the typical general gynecologist is thinking about when in relationship to adults. But we have to consider all of those things in relationship to adolescents. What are some specific scenarios that come to mind in which a patient should be referred to a pediatric adolescent gynecologist? I certainly can jump on that one easily because as Dr. Hillard was talking, I was thinking about one of the other added benefits to seeing a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist is how we are in more tune with irregular menstrual cycles, either heavy ones or painful ones. And we know conditions like endometriosis can entail a 10-year delay of diagnosis, whereas we intervene a lot earlier and can recognize these problems and save girls a lot of discomfort and misery and missed school and perhaps enhancing their future fertility by intervening earlier. Menstrual problems would be, in a nutshell, a great option to see us sooner than later. So in the prepubertal age group, there are girls with vulvovaginal conditions that don't respond to simple measures of hygiene. Then seeing us is certainly something that we are happy to do. So vulvovaginal conditions in young girls are often referred to us for challenges. And then, of course, as we've alluded to previously, the complex anatomical issues that are really quite rare are things that we see commonly because we get the referrals and the community primary doctor or pediatrician or OBGYN probably hasn't seen these things Conditions such as uterovaginal agenesis, Meyer-Rokitinsky-Kusner-Hauser syndrome, MRKH, we see quite regularly. So we are used to dealing with those challenges. We also get referred from primary doctors, the girls with ovarian cysts that are persistent, and that's another area. 
once a little girl is out of diapers and prior to reaching puberty, when she's developing breasts and producing estrogen and the skin of the vulva and vagina is changing, little girls generally don't get yeast infections. And I see so many girls who have been treated by adult gynecologists or their pediatricians for a vulvovaginal yeast infection because the child is having some itching. And that is almost never seen. It is extremely rare to see a yeast infection in a child of that age. So that's certainly one thing that is very different about pediatric gynecology and that many clinicians are not so aware of. The other part that's trending that I probably see a consult a week now, maybe more actually, is this sort of abnormality or perception of vulvar anatomy abnormality. Labial hypertrophy, the infamous, what is wrong with my child's labia? It looks different than mine. It's asymmetric. Does she need surgery? A lot of it is empowering and educating and reassuring and referring to great reputable resources of what looks normal so that families can feel reassured and the child can feel confident and happy. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists recommend that girls have their first reproductive health visit between ages 13 and 15. Do you find that most patients have a preventative health visit according to this guideline, or do you typically see patients once an issue arises? I don't think that recommendation is as widely known as I would like it to be. And I don't think that it's happening as often as I would like it to be happening. And partly because mothers sometimes misunderstand. If they have heard it, they misunderstand what we're saying. We're not saying that a 13-year-old needs an exam as a 25-year-old would need. She doesn't need a speculum exam or a pap smear or an internal gynecologic exam. She needs a visit to talk about adolescent growth and development, to talk about her periods, to answer any questions that she needs answering confidentially, because part of what needs to be provided for the gynecologic care of adolescents is assurances of confidentiality within the limits of the law. So there are legal limits that if we are worried about the patient's self-harm or other harm coming to this patient, then that is something we must disclose. But other than that, assurances of confidentiality are really important to this age group. When given those assurances, not only will kids disclose to us things that are concerning to them and big concerns like gender identity or like a history of a sexual assault or even voluntary sexual activity is regularly disclosed to us when it hasn't been disclosed to others. When the adolescent is given those assurances of confidentiality, kids will ask other questions that are seemingly pretty innocuous, but are troubling them. Is it normal for my breast to be different sizes? Is it okay that I've got hair in this location or that? And those kinds of concerns that weigh on adolescents' mind and psyche are questions that we get regularly when we provide those assurances of confidentiality. We were concerned when we wrote this statement initially that we would be stepping on the toes of pediatricians and family doctors who 
can provide preventive guidance and these kinds of visits. I struggled for a while in my practice to figure out how I could determine if a young woman who was already seeing a clinician needed to see me. And what I eventually came down to is the question of the mom. And so often these were my adult patients who were saying, my daughter is now 13, should she see you? And the question that I would ask the mom in response is, when your daughter sees her primary doctor, does she have an opportunity to talk with that clinician privately and confidentially? And if the answer is no, then I would say that clinician isn't taking the time or doesn't feel comfortable answering those confidential questions that teens have. So if that's the case, then I need to see that teen. If that teen is talking with their clinician privately, I may still need to see her if she's having problems, but I don't necessarily need to be the one to do that first reproductive health visit. In line with what you just said, your population may sometimes have some anxiety about having those conversations with clinicians. Dr. Tyson, what are some techniques that clinicians should utilize for initial evaluation or having that first conversation with your patient? We get that question and inquiry from our residents and our fellows and our medical students and even our pediatric colleagues. I think that every young woman should meet a gynecologist at this young age. This is an opportunity to have her or him or them speak for themselves and start to communicate with their own doctor because they're going to spend most of their lives doing that. In a world where we have such a difficulty with medical literacy and empowering our young women, this is a great chance to meet their doctor and represent themselves and learn to advocate for their own health and well-being or if they have a problem or a concern. So I think having that first confidential visit with their doctor is just so critical. It is challenging to extract the child from the parent and letting the dyad trust us, if you will. There's no time like the present to learn. It doesn't have to be done that first visit. We want to introduce that. So now the next time you come to see me for follow-up, we're going to meet alone and have a talk. And I would say 75, 80% of the time, patients and parents are very receptive, but there are those ones who even the patient is just like, no, I don't want to. I'm nervous. They don't want to go against kind of the family and cause anything upsetting. But I think when you frame it of this is what we do routinely, not that I see something worrisome with your child or you. You sort of start off with the safe topics. Who's at home? Where are you going to school? What kind of activities do you like? And then you dive into the more sensitive things. Have your friends ever explored having sex or doing drugs or tried vaping? Being sensitive to where they are. And it certainly depends on their age and their developmental capacity, because I think even patients who struggle perhaps with communication or developmental delay, still deserve and warrant this time with us. And so you really have to tailor those conversations. And I often preface it with, these are confidential conversations that I'm not trying to be nosy and retrieve information. I want to know what you're doing. And so I can keep you safe and give you the best recommendations. And you can feel comfortable talking about that. Recognizing that you're a teenager and teenagers explore and take risks and try new things. So let's talk about it. You both talked about some of the more common pediatric and adolescent gynecological issues that you saw. I wanted to dive into a little bit more detail with one from each of you. 
talked about your approach to your care and some of the challenges that you see. Probably the most common one that I see and have seen over the years is period problems. That encompasses a lot. She hasn't had her period and at an age when we would expect her to. And that's one of the issues where the textbooks are not quite so evidence-based. Many of the textbooks say that you wouldn't evaluate no periods until the young woman is 16. And all of the evidence, virtually all of the evidence, says that 15 is an age that we should be concerned, if not earlier. Earlier, if she's had signs of hormone imbalance, androgen excess or polycystic ovary syndrome, or has signs of an eating disorder, for example, or over-exercising. Those would all be things to explore related to no periods. But no periods is one thing, but too much bleeding is also way, way common. There's this idea out there that within the first two gynecologic years, that is the first two years after a young woman has her first period or menarche, that cycles are irregular and it's sort of anything goes. And that is clearly not what the evidence shows us. The evidence shows us that even though early cycles are not consistently ovulatory, there are some parameters that are statistically based. So statistically, most young women in those first two years have periods that are cycles that are from 21 to about 45 days apart. So here it implies that we've got some data to be able to look at this. And I can't tell you how many kids have come to me with the problem being stated as irregular periods and they can't reconstruct what their periods were like over the last year. One message that I would give to primary clinicians is please, please, please ask your patients to track their cycles. They can learn about their cycles in that way. And if there are problems related to periods coming too often or too heavy or lasting too long, we have some data. I recommend that they track it however they're actually going to do it, whether it's (laughs) writing down the dates on a piece of paper or charting on their favorite cat calendar that they bring in to show me or many girls now are using apps, whatever form they can bring it in, bring it to me. I will transcribe it and put it in a form that I can understand, but just do it is really the main thing that I would say. Dr. Tyson, how about you? What is one common pediatric and adolescent gynecologic issue that you see, and what's your approach to care? I will see a myriad of patients for period problems You can't see me, but I'm air quoting. When they're actually coming for other issues, they want to talk to their doctor. Is it about they're having sex and they want birth control, but they're presenting with a period problem because that's safe. A lot of times we don't necessarily recognize that an entry to a doctor can come with all sorts of different complaints. Things that we often address through these different chief complaints are things like sexual orientation and gender identity. And they present with a period problem, which is I don't want my periods anymore because they make me unhappy and miserable with myself. Or I have been traumatized by someone in the past and I need help. So really trauma-informed care has been a really big part of our practice. Thinking about consent and promoting sexuality and healthy relationships. I think with COVID, one of the beauties that have come out of the silver lining of this virus and vaccine time is talking about the HPV vaccine. And we're capturing a large chunk of patients who didn't get it when they were 9, 10, 11, 12. 
and now we're seeing them and having the opportunity to have more robust HPV vaccine discussions, if you will. And I think we routinely survey and talk about things like vaping and e-cigarettes and eating disorders. And I talk to patients about sunscreen or what does this tattoo and all these piercings. And so really talking about hot topics that are occurring in our teens today that are beyond sort of the scope of kind of routine pediatric or gynecologic care, if you will. Not to go off the topic, but I think that's how pediatric and adolescent gynecology is. Yeah. Like you start on one topic and you've actually dived in a little further and found there's this whole other layer or two or three that you can identify. That's excellent. A little bit of a microcosm of your office visit where it's one thing and then <laughs> you go into several other directions. Earlier in our conversation, you both alluded to hygiene. So let's talk about hygiene. Why is gynecological hygiene important? And how do you recommend girls practice hygiene? In thinking about one message to clinicians who take care of little girls, it's hygiene, hygiene, hygiene. Sometimes primary doctors have the idea that a girl taking a bath is a problem. And no, it's generally not a problem. Bubble baths can be because the chemicals and the soaps and the bubble baths can be irritating to the vulvovaginal area. But a child standing in the shower doesn't really always get the labia and the genital area as clean as it needs to be. So a focus on hygiene is something that general primary docs can emphasize. There have been some recent marketing efforts of products marketed toward teenage girls to convince them that their vaginas were unhealthy and needed a certain product to keep them clean and fresh. It's just a really insidious sort of thing. Vaginas are pretty remarkable parts of the body that balance out the bacteria and keep themselves healthy the vast majority of the time. And if there's a problem, then you need to think about what's really causing it rather than trying to cover it up with a vaginal product of some sort, a douche or a vaginal feminine hygiene product. I generally am a fan of baths, even for adolescents. We talked about it with pre-pubertal girls, but adolescent girls could probably benefit from taking a bath periodically and soaking in the tub and washing away the surface epithelial cells that kind of get caught and trapped between the folds. But just plain old water is a good thing for that. And you don't need much in the way of products for hygiene. Soaking in warm water is just a magnificent option to help hygiene. But I think of late, we get so many referrals for the opposite where it's almost over hygiene. And there's this strange dyad picture we see with moms with vulvar and vaginal conditions who think perhaps that the daughter has the same condition. These little girls have very different vulvas and vaginas compared to adults and don't necessarily have the same skin or vaginal infections or microbiome. And so I think there's an over-treatment, perhaps, that parents will sometimes presume their child needs or over-hygiene, where they're washing and scrubbing and using crazy things to keep their vulvars clean, where a lot of times it's just simple warm water. And we see at the holidays, people are getting their lush bath bombs and then come see us with these horrible contact dermatitis and infections. Sometimes we can do more harm than we recognize, too. So... I think that's a really interesting area that we've been seeing a lot of consults for. Dr. Tyson, my next question, 
relates to what you said earlier, where your conversations with patients runs the gamut. They present with one chief complaint, and then it opens essentially a little bit of this Pandora's box sometimes, and you get to dig into more important issues that are really underlying the reason why they came in. Do you agree then that PAG specialists really play a role in shaping future health practices of this population? Oh, heck yes, 100%. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's inspiring because all of people who work in PAG, we're just this very passionate sort of enablers and empowers and advocates for these young women and men and this whole generation of young people. It's a very exciting time. I think we're much more open to talking about the hard topics or the challenging ones or the nuanced ones. I think that's a really great place and space to work. And I think the idea of shaping the future is understanding the present and having our eyes open to it. So then we can better educate and provide evidence-based care. I think if you don't ask the hard questions, if you don't dive in to know what's happening, then you can't provide the most up-to-date and proper care for our patients today. How do you balance the requirements for privacy and confidentiality while recognizing parents' legitimate concerns for their child's health and facilitating communication? I have learned over the course of the years to structure the visit, especially with a new patient in a certain way. And not everyone does this. Dr. Tyson and I do things a little bit differently. Years ago, I, working with our psychologist in the Division of Adolescent Medicine, came up with the structure of a visit where initially we meet with the patient, an adolescent, and her parents. Getting the history together initially to figure out a little bit of how the communication is going between, let's just say mom and daughter, how do they communicate in front of me if they are bickering over everything from the date of her last period to what she had for breakfast this morning, that's one thing. If they are respectful of one another and indicating that there's been good communication, that's lovely to see, but we get a little snapshot of that. We also hear what they're willing to talk about in front of me. So if the daughter says, mom and I have been talking about contraception and we both have some questions that we want to talk about now, great, let's talk about them together. But I don't bring that up unless they do initially. So mom and daughter together. And then I talk to mom for a few minutes and I actually outline the structure of the visit. I'm going to talk to the two of you together initially. Then I'm going to take a few minutes to talk to mom privately. And then I'm going to take a few minutes to get to know you, the patient. And in talking to mom privately, I have specific questions that I ask about how mom is feeling. Is she in a relationship? Does she has a boyfriend? Do you like her boyfriend? How do they interact? Are you concerned about sexual activity or alcohol use or vaping or other things? Has she had an emotional trauma in the past? And then the other thing that comes out in that private conversation with mom is are there family secrets? Mom may say, she doesn't know this, but, and give me family history or something else that is being kept a secret in the family. And that's helpful information. But you're also forming a relationship with mom and you're both there for the same reason. Mom is there all the time with the goals of her daughter being and staying healthy. 
I'm stepping in for this particular visit and related to this particular problem, but we both have the same goals is for the daughter to be as healthy as she can be. And so forming that relationship with mom, explaining the policies on confidentiality that I have, and then the opportunity to talk to daughter alone to ask all the questions. But I think that few minutes with mom alone really helps to form that relationship, helps you to understand the daughter in the context of her family, and I think helps us to take better care of daughter. I think the approach too is to empower the daughter to start engaging in her health care. And so sometimes you can find in young patients and even the older young adults, they're just not familiar. Their mom or dad or parent has always spoken for them or grandparent. And so it's fun to give them the chance to speak, to advocate. Sometimes it doesn't go so well, and sometimes they're very excited and you really get them talking. So it's a great allyship. And then I would highlight that the thing that Paula does so well, and we really all try to do so well, is build that relationship with the dyad, with the child and the parent, with the hopes knowing that the parent's the biggest influence here and trying to encourage that relationship. But there are certainly times where that relationship is not functional and not going to work. And so we are sort of the champion and the ally for the younger patient who is there to see us. That's the consult. And that's what we can tell the patient. I'm your doctor. As we wrap up our conversation, I have a question for both of you. If you had one key takeaway for clinicians on this topic, pediatric and adolescent gynecology, what's the key takeaway? I think one of the big ones is that we exist. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that a lot of times people don't even know what PAG is. Dr. Hillard is, you know, the editor of our journal. There's a whole journal of pediatric and adolescent gynecology. And I think several editorials are titled, what is PAG? Because people don't even know what it is that we do, that we're a subspecialty, that there's fellowships, that there's conferences, that there's international organizations. We are there and we're very good at what we do and very passionate about it. And so I would say we are here. Pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Is here. Excellent. It's here to stay and growing. Fantastic. Thank you. Dr. Hillard. I love it that Dr. Tyson gave that as the first point. That really is a biggie. And that's what we want is for people to know that we are here to help their patients and to help girls. In terms of some messages for primary clinicians in taking care of this age group, we've mentioned hygiene, hygiene, hygiene. We've mentioned tracking of menstrual cycles. We've mentioned it's not just anything goes for menstrual cycles early on and the 21 to 45 days. I didn't mention, but would want to, bleeding that lasts longer than seven or eight days is outside of that statistical range and should not be happening if she's been bleeding for the last 30 days. That's a problem. We certainly want to encourage responsible sexual activity at an age when a young woman can be responsible. I certainly gave more than one, but those would be some of the messages that I would love for listeners of the podcast to hear. I would add a couple subtle ones too, I would say. That girls shouldn't be suffering and missing school with their periods and have to put up with it. They shouldn't have to soak through their clothes and their bed sheets. And pubic hair is good. (laughs) (laughs) I would be remiss not to mention that. (laughs) Well, what better way to end this conversation, right? (laughs) It's a wrap. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you both for chatting with me today on this topic. It was great chatting with you. Learned a lot. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thanks for tuning in. 
This podcast was brought to you by Stanford CME. To claim CME for listening to this episode, click on the Claim CME button below or visit medcast.stanford.edu. Check back for new episodes by subscribing to Stanford MedCast wherever you listen to podcasts.